Welcome to this episode of the Future Champions Podcast, Five Quotes, where I share five quotes from a book that has influenced me in some way. In this episode, we explore the autobiography, My Story, Michael Clark, Australian cricket batsman, bowler and captain. There is so much knowledge in this book and if you are considering professional sport, I highly recommend that you read it. When reflecting on my story by Michael Clark, I'm impressed with the complete honesty. Also, how hard Michael had to work to overcome injury, spending most of his career in pain from a degenerative back injury. But above all, his unrelenting desire to be the best batsman he could be and to represent Australia in cricket. The first quote I've chosen relates to advice that Michael received from Neil DaCosta, his cricket coach and mentor. It is a message that can be transferred into any sport or any pursuit in life. Don't just watch the batter bat and the bowler bowl. Watch the whole game of cricket. Why is the game drifting? What could you do? As a kid, I learned to watch the whole canvas. There is so much more to the game than the batsman and the bowler. And when I became Australian captain, I got the chance to develop and express my ideas about how to influence matches. Winning was always my prime concern. As I grew up watching sport, I liked how there had to be a winner and a loser, and I was not afraid to risk losing if it increased our chances of winning. If that meant a surprise declaration or some ultra-aggressive batting in the second innings to set up a run chase, I was happy to take the gamble. The next quote is a long quote, but it is a very real account of when Michael Clark was dropped from the Australian cricket team. He expresses his grief, but is so honest about why he was dropped. I think that if he wasn't as honest about his failure, it would have prevented him from going on to greater things. Being dropped from the Australian team feels like a public humiliation. I'm ashamed of myself. On the flight out of Hobart, I pull my cap down low over my eyes and jam in my headphones. The TV news on the screen in the plane shows the announcement that I've been dropped. I hunch down lower. I'm so embarrassed. I don't want to show my face. It's devastating, far worse than anyone says it's going to be. For weeks, I've been feeling that the axe was about to fall, but now that it has, there's no relief and no upside. It's not just that I haven't scored enough runs, it's that I've been my own worst enemy. For the past year since I made the Australian team and scored those hundreds on debut against India and Brisbane, I've been inundated with sponsorship offers, media attention, all the perks that come with the tag of rising new talent. In a team full of familiar faces, the public has grown complacent with success and I became the fresh new face to fill the vacuum. I didn't ask for it, but I haven't said no to anything either. If sponsors wanted me to turn up for a photo shoot, I've said yes and put my training off to another time. If a magazine wants an interview, I've said yes and reshuffled my cricket commitments around it. The trappings of fame. They're called trappings for a reason. I haven't been hardened by a lot of setbacks through my cricket life. My early seasons with New South Wales weren't easy but I've always felt I was on the up and up. I didn't have much self-doubt. When was the last time I missed out on selection? When the rep under 13s didn't pick me and I burst into tears? 
I know I've been extremely fortunate down the years to have the selectors reward me for my effort and potential. It's left me weak when finally that tap of approval is turned off. My goal has always been to strive to keep going forward, not go backwards. Getting dropped, I'm heartbroken. I'm going backwards for the first time. Never having experienced such a setback before, I don't have any resistance. I haven't built up any scar tissue. Instead of going home when I fly in from Hobart, I go to my mum and dad's house. They're the two people I feel I can turn to. I know you're upset and I'm here to support you, dad says. You can let this go one of two ways. You can stay here and cry on our shoulder or we can go to the Nets tomorrow and start working to get you back into the Australian team. It happens just like that. I know I have to get out of the spotlight in order to clear my mind, reassess my priorities, and really ask myself if I want to be an Australian cricketer. For the last six to 12 months, I think I've wanted it, but I haven't acted like it's the be-all and end-all. I haven't put cricket first. I don't keep it a secret that Matthew Hayden is one of my all-time heroes. There are few people that I've admired to the extent I do Matthew Hayden. So when I read this advice that Hayden gave to Michael, I couldn't help but find value in it. These top-order batting greats were all at their peak when I came into the Australian team, and I wanted to soak up everything I could learn from them. In their own ways, they were all obsessive technicians of the game. Matthew Hayden taught me about playing straight at the Gabber and Wacker, where it was so hard to drive early. Play straight or play horizontal, he said, nothing in between. When things got tough for me, he pulled me aside and said, if you keep telling yourself you get the bad decisions or the good ball, it's not going to change. You've got to be more positive. What you say out loud generally happens. It becomes self-fulfilling. It was great advice. The next quote is incredibly powerful and is a very truthful statement about the difference between achieving greatness and falling short. Ever since I'd made underage rep teams and seen others more talented than me fall by the wayside, I'd often wondered what the main difference was between those who made it to high levels and those who didn't. Sometimes the latter didn't really want to. Sometimes they found it hard to cope with the travel. Sometimes the psychological toughness of serious cricket got too much. Sometimes there were family reasons. In fact, there was a different set of reasons for every person. But if I had to boil down what made me different, I would say it was my all-consuming love of the game. I loved it more than the guy who wanted to have a coffee with his girlfriend. I loved it more than the guy who had a late night out and backed himself to be right by the morning. I always put cricket first. If I could have played cricket 24-7, I would have. I just wanted to win, score runs, take wickets, get a run out. For the fifth quote, I've chosen a very simple but powerful message. As Michael Clarke signs off in his book, he leaves with these words. To all the people that told me you can't, you won't, and you're not good enough. 
You got me out of bed every day and drove me to accomplish things in my life I didn't think I could do. Thank you, Michael Clark. I want to leave you with some final words from Michael Clark. In this book, he shares the story of how his very close friend, an Australian cricket player, Philip Hughes, died after being struck by a cricket ball while batting at the Sydney Cricket Ground on the 25th of November, 2014. Philip was like a little brother to Michael, and the death was very hard for him to accept. At Philip's funeral, Michael Clark rose to give a eulogy for his mate. The words of this eulogy are in Michael's book. It is incredibly heartbreaking and a powerful message that our journey in life, no matter the success, is richer because of the people we share it with. Here is the eulogy, as spoken by Michael Clark, Australian cricket captain, batsman, bowler and mate. I'm deeply honoured to have been asked by Philip's family to speak today. I am humbled to be in the presence of you, his family, his friends and his community. He was so proud of Maxwell and it's easy to see why today. Taken from the game, his family and loved ones at the age of just 25, he left the mark on our game that needs no embellishment. I don't know about you, but I keep looking for him. I know it's crazy, but I expect any minute to take a call from him. I want to see his face pop around the corner. Is this what we call the spirit? If so, then his spirit is still with me and I hope it never leaves. I walked to the middle of the SCG on Thursday night. Those same blades of grass beneath my feet where he and I and so many of his mates here today have built partnerships, taken chances, and lived out the dreams we painted in our heads as boys. The same stands where the crowds rose to their feet to cheer him on, and that same fence he sent the ball to time and time again. And it's now forever the place where he fell. I stood there at the wicket, I kneeled down and touched the grass. I swear he was with me, picking me up off my feet to check if I was okay. Telling me we just needed to dig in and get through to tea. Telling me off for that loose shot I played. Chatting about what movie we might watch that night and then passing on a useless fact about cows. <laughs> and I could see him swagger back to the other end, grin at the bowler and call me through for a run with such a booming voice a bloke in the car park would hear it. The heart of a man who lived his life for this wonderful game we play and whose soul enriched not just our sport but all of our lives. Is this what Indigenous Australians believe about a person's spirit being connected with the land upon which they walk? If so, I know they are right about the SCG. His spirit has touched it, and it will be ever be, and it will forever be a sacred ground for me. I can feel his presence there, and I can see how he has touched so many people around the world. The tributes to him from cricket lovers kept me going. The photos, the words, the prayers, and the sense of communion in this loss from people across the globe have shown me his spirit is in action. It has sustained me and overwhelmed me in equal measure. And the love of my band of baggy green and gold brothers and sisters have held me upright when I thought I could not proceed.
His spirit has brought us closer together. Something I know must be him at work because it's so consistent with how he played and lived. He always wanted to bring people together and he always wanted to celebrate his love, his love for the game and its people. Is this what we call the spirit of cricket? From the little girl in Karachi holding a candlelight tribute to masters of the game like Tendulkar, Warren and Lara, showing their grief to the world. The spirit of cricket binds us all together. We feel it in the thrill of a cover drive or the taking of a screamer at Gully, whether by a 12-year-old boy in Worcester or by Brennan McCullum in Dubai. It's in the brilliant 105-wicket haul, just as, just as significant to the players in a Western Suburbs club game as it is in a test match. The bonds that lead to cricketers from around the world putting their bats out that saw people who didn't even know Philip lay flowers at the gates of Lords, and that brought every cricketing nation on earth to make its own heartfelt tribute. The bonds that saw players old and new rush to his bedside from wherever they heard the news to say their prayers and farewells. farewells. This is what makes our game the greatest game in the world. Philip's spirit, which is now part of our game forever, will act as a custodian of the sport we all love. We must listen to it, we must cherish it, we must learn from it. We must dig in. We must dig in and get through to tea. And we must play on. So rest in peace, my little brother. I'll see you out in the middle.